Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm your host, Richard Nelson. Well, Thanksgiving is upon us, where most of us will gather together around the dinner table and eat turkey and pumpkin pie, watch football, and enjoy time with family. But what is it that we're actually celebrating? Is it just food and family, or is it something deeper? We learned in grade school that the pilgrims came here from England, and after a long, hard winter, they invited the Indians for some kind of a celebration, a celebration that we celebrate and remember as our first Thanksgiving. But is our history accurate? There's much revisionism going on regarding the pilgrims and also God's role in the establishment of the American colonies. That'd be a good program to invite Dr. Thomas Kidd, who's a professor of church history at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He also teaches American history. He's the author of numerous books, including his most recent, called Thomas Jefferson, Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Dr. Kidd has written for media outlets like the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. And he also blogs on evangelical history at the Gospel Coalition website. Dr. Kidd, welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. Thanks for having me. So back in 2013, you wrote a column that caught my attention uh, in Christianity Today. It was entitled, This Thanksgiving, Stop Idolizing the Pilgrims. An evangelical historian teaches us how to think critically about the heroes of the past. Now, one reason I, I start out with this is because we do have a tendency to idolize some of the historical figures, whether they're American presidents or figures uh, like the Pilgrims. And uh, you're approaching this not as a revisionist, but as a Christian historian or as a historian who happens to be a Christian. And you want us to have an accurate uh, understanding uh, of the Pilgrims and of our, of our history. Uh, really, what, what prompted you to, uh, to, to write this in the first place? Right. Well, uh, you know, Christianity Today asked me to write this piece about about the first Thanksgiving and the Pilgrims interacting with a, a book by Tracy McKenzie about about the the first Thanksgiving and and more generally, um, you know, there's there's just a sense I think that we have a really hard time knowing how to talk about people in the past in our culture now because you know, on one hand, you have this sort of cancel culture impulse where if you can discover any way and what somebody in the past doesn't live up to kind of contemporary, usually secular liberal mores, uh, you know, they're, they're irredeemable and we can't talk about them anymore and, and they have to be canceled. Uh, and then I think that there's a sort of conservative and Christian backlash against that. Um, that gets very defensive and says, no, you know, we, we won't put up with any kind of negative talk about the people we admire in history. And, and you know, as Christians, we know that everybody is imperfect. Um, everybody is sinful. Um, so as much as we admire people, we can't go to the other extreme and just say, oh, well, these people were perfect. Um, and, and are not subject to criticism. And so that, that kind of leaves us at an impasse with people like the Pilgrims, uh, who were clearly courageous, uh, you, you know, and, and champions of, of what we now would call religious liberty. Um, but, but it's not as if they were perfect people. They had flaws, and, and, they, and, and you know, we need to be willing to talk about that. So in a way, it's just kind of exploring that problem that we have, especially from a Christian perspective, about how to, you know, given the state of our culture now, 
How do we talk about people in the past that we really admire? Now, you wrote that column before really cancel culture came on the scene. I'd say cancel culture really has uh, taken full form just in the last few years uh, since COVID. It seems that there is a more active effort to cancel those out, those opinions uh, that don't align with mainstream secular values. You wrote this column about the pilgrims in 2013. By the way, I want to make clear to our listeners that this is not a program meant to discredit the pilgrims or to discount any of the good that they did. I think they did amazing things. Uh, just the courage, as, as you mentioned, Dr. Kidd, to leave their homeland and to uh, to come here to set up a essentially a Christian commonwealth. If you read the Mayflower Compact, uh, it's very clear that they uh, wanted to do life in a different way apart from the Church of England. But could you expand on that? Let's talk about some of the good, uh, some of the positive, the motivating forces of the pilgrims. Why, why did they come? Sure. Well, the, the pilgrims were part of uh, the separatist movement in uh, the in England, and and they were a very small group of Christians in England who believed that the Church of England, which was the official national denomination, was then and it still is today in England, um, had become really apostate um, it, for for a variety of reasons. They just they didn't feel like it was fully reformed. They felt like it was it was corrupted in all kinds of ways. And so they wanted to start their own churches. Seems pretty simple to us, but in the 1620s in England, that was illegal. Um, you, you had to get permission from the state uh, to start a church, and there, and, and there was no tolerance for uh, people who, who didn't believe in the Church of England. And so whether you were separatist or a Baptist or even, you know, a Catholic or some, something like that, forget it. You know, you can't. You cannot start your own church. And so uh, in, in a way, it has almost a feel of like in China, the house churches or something like that, where the, the separatists just would not cooperate with the mandates of the state about religion. Uh, and so they were badly persecuted in the early 1600s in, in England. They, they started uh, meeting in illegal, uh, you know, kind of home congregations and uh, suffered terribly under persecution. Um, and so some of them ended up going to the Netherlands uh, across the English Channel and, and continental Europe. Um, and uh, that, that was a little better because the Netherlands did have um, at least kind of religious toleration. They weren't going to you know, drag you out of your house <laughs> and make you go to the official church. And so that, that was OK uh, for the separatists. But um, some of them worried about the corruption of the churches in the Netherlands and the influence of Dutch cu culture and, and that sort of thing. And so uh, a group of, of the English separatists decided ultimately to uh, leave Europe and go to the New World. Um, and, and that was an attraction for many thousands of people uh, of a, a lot of different kinds of religious groups about that the new world seemed like a, a kind of a fresh start, that, that uh, if they had suffered persecution for a variety of reasons uh, in Europe and in Britain, that maybe they could go to the new world and, and be able to practice their faith and, and freedom, and freedom in particular from persecution. And so that's, that's what the, the Plymouth separatists were doing uh, when they showed up in the new world in 1620. 
Now, there were two groups that disagreed with what the Church of England was doing. You said, use the word apostasy. Uh, they were not, they violated a number of uh, Orthodox uh, Christian principles. But there was the other group, the Puritans. Tell us the difference between the Pilgrims and the Puritans. Right. So uh, if you think about the difference between the Puritans and the Separatists, and so the Pilgrims are Separatists, and and so you can tell by their name what what their stance is with regard to the Church of England. So the Separatists want to separate from the Church of England entirely, which, again, is illegal. The Puritans were not quite as radical as the separatists. They, they thought there, there were huge problems with the Church of England, but that they, they still thought it could be purified from within. So, so as, a, as a practical matter, the Puritans said, we, we are still part of the Church of England, but we need to work on a lot of biblical uh, reform. And so the separatists come to Plymouth in 1620 but a much larger group of Puritans found Massachusetts in 1629 and, and 30. Uh, and so 10 years after the, the uh, pilgrims, quote unquote, come to uh, Plymouth. But, and, and, and so the, 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 the Puritans tended to think that the separatists were kind of fanatics, right? And so we, we, we think, well, all these people were just sort of, you know, English Christians and stuff, and they all got along with that. Absolutely not true. Uh, the Puritans kind of thought that the separatists were crazy, um, but but they were motivated by the, the same type of concerns about the problems in the Church of England. You know, one of the ironies I see here is that if it was the Puritans who came here first and the Pilgrims came after, the Pilgrims wouldn't have had religious freedom to worship according to their conscience. Is, is that accurate? That's accurate. Uh, the, the Puritans... Uh, I mean, they they came for religious freedom in the sense of being able to practice biblical faith and freedom, but they would not extend that freedom to people who did not agree with the Puritans. Um, and so there there are only very small groups of Christians, um, people like Roger Williams, who founded Rhode Island, who was also attracted to separatism. Uh, Roger Williams was one of the only people in colonial America who believed that you should just get the state out of religion. And, and one of the things that groups like the Puritans expected the state in, you know, in Massachusetts to do was to enforce religious orthodoxy. But, but Williams just thought, no, I mean, we, let's just get the state out of it because the state corrupts things, uh, which I think he's <laughs> right about that. Uh, and, and, and so especially, you know, the, the church is just too important to let the to let the state run run a church? No, that's that's terrible. <laughs> Let's, and and so there there are small groups uh, in in colonial America who believe in religious liberty in a, in a kind of a modern sense in the way that most of us think think about it. Uh, but the Puritans were not interested in tolerating di- you know, religious disagreement, uh, and so they they badly persecuted separatists, but but also groups like the Baptists. Uh, they would not allow to live in Massachusetts. They would not allow Quakers. They would not allow Catholics. They would not allow Jews. I mean, they, they, in our view, I, I, I think it, even in a conservative Christian view today, they would be seen as intolerant. Intolerant and uh, really creating a, a two-class society where unless you were part of the Puritan church, uh, you would not have full citizenship rights. You, you had to be licensed to teach and it could only be a Puritan 
church or congregational church. You could not vote. You could not hold office. You did not have freedom of conscience. And along these lines, we did a conference back a couple months ago about Christian nationalism, and we were able to unpack some of these ideas. And again, this is not to discount the good things that the Puritans did, the good that they brought here. But this is, uh, there were certainly some warts and blemishes as well that we need to address and, and carefully think about. Dr. Kidd, let's talk about that first Thanksgiving. I just learned something yesterday as I was putting together notes for this program. You know, the Charlie Brown version or the grade school version says that after that hard winter, where of course the pilgrims lost half of their number uh, within the first year, many of them were lost traveling uh, over the ocean. Many of them didn't make it through that hard winter. They ended up burying many of their people here. We think of Plymouth, first place that they stopped, but it's really not true. They stopped. They first landed at Cape Cod. The Indians didn't welcome them there. They pulled up their anchor, got back in the ship, and then they went to Plymouth ultimately. And they, we think of the Indians coming to help them, show them how to plant corn and how to live off the land. And then we we hear that the pilgrims invited the uh, the Indians, but that really wasn't the case. Actually, the the pilgrims were having a celebration. They were shooting their guns in celebration, and the Indians, the local Indians, as, as I understand, as I learned yesterday, uh, thought there was some kind of a war breaking out. So Massasoit, with ninety of his warriors, came, and uh, they were prepared for some kind of a some kind of a battle. Is that your understanding? The the records that we have of what happened in 1621 are just very spotty. I mean, and, and so, I mean, we know that there was some sort of meal um, that that they had with local Indians led by Massasoit. Um, and there had been some, you know, diplomatic overtures between uh, the the local Indians and, and the Plymouth colonists. But um, I, as you said, I mean, that first winter, uh, you know, in the Charlie Brown version, I mean, I, it, it's easy to underestimate how harrowing that first winter was. And it wasn't a large group anyway, but half of them died. Um, and that that's part, I mean, it's not to criticize them, but it's so often the case that the early colonists just simply did not know what they were getting into. Um, and it's a horrible uh, thing to think about them. I mean, so many of them died before they even got off the ship. Um, there's starvation. Uh, it's it's just a, a terrible, terrible situation that they're in, and so I think that puts a different gloss on what what Thanksgiving means for them. Is is that they they've sacrificed so much to to come to the new world, and then they see half of their company die within a year, and so that that uh, first it, it's a harvest festival. Uh, and they have gotten some help from lo- local Native Americans about how best to grow crops uh, in in Plymouth. Um, and so, some you know, some we can fill in some of the details about you know what they must have felt and what this was was like. But it's a grim occasion, as much as a, a celebration of just thank God that some of us are still alive. Um, and and they are undoubtedly thankful for the help that they got from Native Americans, but it's it's in a minor chord, I, th- I think, uh, more than just sort of quaint celebrations and the, the and the incredible material abundance that we enjoy today uh, is nothing like what what they they experience. They're they're just trying to survive. Right. 
of course, the Indians did uh, bring deer. The records indicate that they brought five uh, five deer to the celebration. The Indians did have turkey. Uh, many of the other foods that they had were not uh, like what we have today. I understand they had shellfish. You know, they weren't probably didn't put stuffing inside the turkey. They didn't think they were making pumpkin pies, that kind of thing. No, there were no pies. And we think that they brought, they almost certainly ate eel. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, they, they, they did, they did seem to have Turkey though. I mean, that, so at least, at least there's that, that makes it recognizable, but, but, uh, otherwise it's, it's, it's just what they had around. And, and, and so, uh, it, it, it was, again, it was not this kind of go to the grocery store in abundance that we enjoy today. If you are enjoying this podcast, then please go to your favorite podcast platform and rate us. This is one of the ways that you can help our podcast audience grow. Also, please tell a friend about us. You can share the Commonwealth Matters on your social media platforms as well. Thanks again for listening to the Commonwealth Matters. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson talking with Dr. Thomas Kidd about the Pilgrims and Thanksgiving. Uh, Dr. Kidd, how did the original Thanksgiving celebration turn into a modern holiday? I know it didn't, it was celebrated by the pilgrims early on, but then there were lapses where it was not celebrated every year. It was not a national holiday. How did it become a modern holiday? Well, so Thanksgiving as, as a observance is, is really an older Christian tradition, um, that, that, predates 1620. It was just normal, especially in a situation where you had a state church for the, the, the government and the churches to announce that we're, we're going to set aside a certain day as a day of Thanksgiving. But it wasn't necessarily the same time every year. It was more just if, if, if say, there's a great victory in a battle or some, something like that, that, that they believed that they were accountable to God for you know all good things that 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 happened and uh, their their uh, fate as a people, so that they would just regularly have Thanksgiving services and and so that that is what 1621 was is just an occasional Thanksgiving service, but they would also have days of prayer and fasting. Uh, sometimes they called them days of prayer, fasting, and humiliation. If you can ma- imagine, you know, the, the government saying we need to have a day of prayer, fasting, and humiliation before God. Uh, so, it, in other words, people were everybody was familiar with the idea of having a day of Thanksgiving. Um, it just wasn't a, like a national holiday, like you you said. And um, so, so the colonies would do that. Britain would do that. Um, and, and then, uh, of course, everything changes with the revolution. Uh, but the Continental Congress was regularly declaring days of, of Thanksgiving or or prayer and fasting. Um, and and so when George Washington becomes president uh, in in the 1780s, it's just as natural as it can be that he what his administration would declare days of of Thanksgiving. Um, and so they they began that practice right away uh, in 1789, and uh, that that Thanksgiving happened to be in in November uh, that Washington proclaimed. But that I think is when you start to have the the attachment to November, um, and and it, it is a, a natural time because of the kind of the end of the harvest and and moving into winter. It's a natural 
seasonal time to have it. Was this based on the historical context of the pilgrims or was this based on maybe he had some ideas of uh, where the the state could act in somewhat of a religious capacity. We do know that he called upon God. He did attend church. But where, where did he get this idea to have a, a proclamation calling for prayer and fasting and even a proclamation of thanksgiving? Sure. Well, I mean, people like Washington were uh, entirely familiar with the practice of calling for days of thanksgiving uh, or days of prayer and fasting. Um, and so he wouldn't have needed uh, to call on the memory of of the, the pilgrims because it was, I mean, there were much more recent precedents and the Continental Congress was doing that during the revolution. Um, and this is just what governments did at the time in Britain and America. Um, so it, it, it would have been, what would have been strange is for Washington not to do it. Uh, <laughs> that he literally would have been breaking precedent to not do this. And and there was no sense at the time of that this somehow would be inappropriate for the government to do a, a a day of thanksgiving to God. I mean, this this is just what governments at the time did, and so it was it was very smooth for Washington to declare a day of of national thanksgiving. Um, and and so from time to time, uh, the the national government in the United States after the Revolution would do this. Um, you know, Jefferson was an outlier in the sense that he w- he was very hesitant about having the national government call for days of prayer in particular. Um, he he thought that that was a violation of the First Amendment's pro- prohibition on uh, establishments of religion. But basically, all the other presidents in the 1700s and 1800s, you know, just didn't agree with Jefferson. Uh, and so it became a, a, a regular practice during the Civil War to have a Thanksgiving national holiday in uh, November. Uh, and so it was observed every year from then on. And then I, I think during uh, the 1940s, it was made a, 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 you know, an annual national holiday that didn't have to be proclaimed every year. Let's look at, I want to go back to the Pilgrims. And what motivated them to come here? They they sought religious freedom. They were being persecuted uh, from uh, England. They wanted to set up, if you will, a Christian commonwealth. I think that's what the Mayflower Compact uh, clearly says. What are some of the common myths about the Pilgrims? Oh well, I mean, I think that one is just I I, I think we tend to think of them as the first colonists, so which is just it's just completely wrong. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, the first enduring English settlement in America is Virginia in 1607, uh, so proceeds Plymouth by, by 13 years. I think that the reason we, we give so much attention to Plymouth is because of Thanksgiving. Um, but, but I think a lot of Americans would think, oh, well, somehow they were like the first or something, but that's not, not, not true, that uh, they were a, a, a very, very small group. Um, especially as compared to the Massachusetts colonists, uh, and ultimately Massachusetts absorbs the Plymouth colony. Um, So the Plymouth colony doesn't even last as as an enduring colony. So, uh, I mean, I'm all for their symbolic importance, but in terms of the the broader spectrum of English colonists in America, um, 
I, I think we can say they're they're not that important. <laughs> but but you know, I mean, Amer- it's so hard to get Americans to think about anything historical ever. Uh, that that I you know, I think that that the connection to Thanksgiving is a good reason to to focus on uh, the the Plymouth uh, colonists, and 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 it really is important in the sense of the precedent for religious liberty. I mean, because the, the Virginia colonists uh, are, I mean, they're, they're overwhelmingly Christian and everything, but, but they, they didn't come to Virginia for religious liberty in the way that the Plymouth separatists did. And so, so for those of us who uh, value that tradition of religious liberty, I, I, really, I really do think that the, the Plymouth separatists are awfully important. I want to talk about, if I could, the importance of understanding our history. Uh, People that doesn't understand their history, doesn't know where they came from, or I would say where they're going. Uh, As Christians in particular, we should understand our history and and really how we can see God's hand in history. Dr. Kidd, you wrote uh, another column at Christianity Today called Five Ways We Misunderstand American Religious History. As Christians, we should be people of truth. Um, we should care about the past, and we should care about telling the truth as we in the present and looking forward. What are some potential dangers or even opportunities for Christians when we study the religious history of America, in, including events like Thanksgiving and including people like the the Pilgrims? Yeah, I mean, I I think we you know we tend to go to one extreme or the other of of just trashing people in the past. Uh, which seems to be the specialty of a lot of secular liberals today, um, uh, and and sort of establishing our own like virtue by condemning people in the past. It's a very strange kind of virtue, but that that's what people seem to like to do these days. Um, but uh, on on kind of my side as a conservative Christian, I mean, I I think our, our problem is is making people out to be more than what. Really, we we know theologically people can ever be. I mean, every everybody except for a certain carpenter's son from Nazareth. I mean, is, is you know imperfect, flawed, and sinful, um, and, and so subject to the same kind of limitations and struggles that I am. Uh, and, and 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 so I, I think that you know we we have to be willing to talk about that and be honest about that. Uh, so, I mean, one of the things that sobers me about the Plymouth colonists is is that you know they they overall had a pretty good record of re- relations with Native Americans. Uh, that's partly because there, I mean there was a, a Native American village at Plymouth uh, there before they arrived, but it seems that most of the Native Americans there died from epidemic disease before the Plymouth colonists even got off the boat. So there's another kind of sobering. It's, it's sad to think of them coming to this sort of vacated village where epidemic disease had hit and everybody died. But there is a terrible uh, outbreak of violence in, in the mid-1620s when uh, the Plymouth colonists basically launch a kind of preemptive attack against the Massachusetts in- Indians because they're afraid that, that the Indians are going to attack them. Um, and there there's you know beheadings and you know they they post somebody uh, a native american's head on a pike outside the plymouth fort i mean it's it's just gruesome stuff when you, you you think about it what what's going on but that's that's just, it marks a lot of the relations between the english colonists and local native americans is just violence both ways misunderstanding miscommunication suspicion 
hostility that leads to just grotesque violence in many cases. And, 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 and it's just, it's tragic. It's, 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 it's horrible. It's sad. Um, and, and so there, I think we, we always have to be open to, um, seeing the, 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 the tragedy, uh, and the errors and sins even of people in the past. Um, and, 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 and leading to, I, I hope, humility on our part of not, not triumphalism about how much better we are allegedly than people in the past, but just humility about uh, the, the, you know, the sad record of human history and, and violence that's just marked by sin. Very well said. You'd mentioned that we see people today trash those historical characters when they find a flaw or they find terrible, egregious sin. They trash them. And I'm wondering how as Christians we can look at our historical figures who had some virtue, courage, deep religious convictions, and yet very flawed and did some, in, as you just shared, some terrible things. I guess I'm answering my own question. We look at our own fallenness, our own sin, and realize that none of us are perfect. But yet, Dr. Kidd, and, and I guess here's where I want to go with this, how do we process through American history in light of flawed, sinful human beings who did have virtue in some cases, and yet they had sin and they made some terrible mistakes? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that we have a perfectly good model in the biblical mode when you think about the way that everybody in the Bible is presented as, aside from Jesus. I mean, you think about David, for instance, I mean, who, who if it was just standard kind of mythology, uh, that, you know, the Old Testament writers would have presented David as this just unalloyed hero who's, who's entirely admirable, but instead... He, he, you know, he, he, he's incredibly successful and admirable and wonderful. And then he, he just wrecks his life and his family uh, with, with the business with Bathsheba and, and Uriah the Hittite. And, and so, I mean, that, that to me is, is a more um, a realistic mode and it's a more biblical mode of, of, of saying, you know, that people can do great, wonderful things um, but that everyone is tainted by sin. And th- that's also a better model than cancel culture model, uh, because, because they, I'm not, I have no problem with criticizing historical figures when, when warranted. What I have a problem with is the, the idea of wagging our fingers at people in the past as if we know we would have done better than them. I, I, I mean, we, we, should, we should be humbled by people's failings in the past. But saying, you know, look at somebody who's so great and so admirable and did such wonderful things, and yet uh, they, they, they have this sin in, in, in their life, uh, with limited vision and all, all kinds of problems. Um, that's, I think that's the biblical mode, is, is that we're, we're humbled by the, the sin that we see in people's lives in, in the past, and it's a warning to us. Uh, that, but for the grace of God, there go I. I mean, I, that that to me is the is a more biblical mode than being defensive about our heroes and saying, "Oh, we have to act. We can't talk about the negative because somehow that would make them, I don't know, less heroic or something." But but uh, yeah, somewhere in the middle there, I think is the is the right balance of being candid about who these people are. They're just regular people like you and me. Um, but yet God used them to do great things. That, that's, that's the balance. 
That's very well said. Uh, your point about humility is so important. We live in an age that really lacks humility. Humility is not seen as a virtue, but we should be humbled when we look at the fallenness of, of our forebears, of the people we look up to and realize that they were men that had feet of clay and women that had feet of clay. And it should cause us to be humble. I would add to this that as Christians, it there's an opportunity to point to the uh, inherent sinfulness of all mankind, that we are broken, we are sinful, we are deeply flawed. And then we can pivot from this and point to a savior, the only perfect one, as he said, the son of a carpenter, the only perfect one who lived on earth. And he wasn't just a man, but this was God in the flesh who took on the sins of the world in order to reconcile us to God the Father. And that's good news, uh, Dr. Kidd. It's news that we need today. It's news that uh, we need in our cancel culture, in our revisionist historical context. Uh, it's news that we in the church need to re re be reminded of, that we need the living Savior to be gracious and merciful to us as we live out the faith in the world. Dr. Thomas Kidd, it has been a pleasure having you on this program. If anybody would like to get your recent book, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh, how would they find that? Well, they can certainly order it at Amazon. And if your local bookstore doesn't have it on the shelf, they can always uh, order it for you as well. Dr. Thomas Kidd, thank you again for joining us on the Commonwealth Matters. Thank you again for listening. May God bless you and enjoy your Thanksgiving. <laughs>